Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29 for our sermon time this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. And we're reading verses 29 through 34. Our title is Good Company, as in keeping good company. And our points will be built around that this morning, around keeping good company with the signs that we take, around keeping good company with the goals that we make, and the friends that we make as well. So we're going to be looking at the signs that we take on, such as baptism. We'll be looking at the goals that we set with regard to pride and risk, and we're going to be looking at the, the kinds of friends that we make and how that impacts our morals. Uh, and so we want to be able to ask good questions this morning of the text so that we can be convictional and live in light of those convictions. And I'm convinced that if you do so, you'll have a more fulfilling life, even if there's struggles, which the gospel promises there will be, you'll have a more fulfilling life. And in addition to having a fulfilling life, you will have hope of eternal life, which is even more important than having a fulfilling life. I have to admit this morning, as I was preparing for this service, I did have graduation and celebration and the, the calendar in mind to some extent, and I fought it for a bit, but then I just decided, well, maybe it might be meaningful to all of us to consider things like the signs we take, such as baptism, what they mean for the, uh, the kind of lives that we live with regard to the goals that we're seeking out to try to accomplish, as well as with regard to the kinds of friends that we make and what that has to do with with, uh, with how our lives are shaped. So that's, that's kind of how I want to go about it this morning. I have a three-year-old daughter, and maybe this helps frame the reading of the text, a uh, three-year-old daughter, and she's in the questioning phase, you know, the uh, why, 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 I mean, why, why, what, why, why, do you know what I mean? Have, some of you, you don't have to have a three-year-old daughter to know this, right? They enter that phase where everything's a why or a what question, well, in order to try to get the lay of this text in its context here, I want you to listen for the why and the what questions. And 1 Corinthians 15, the argument that the Apostle Paul is advancing is an argument that the resurrection of the dead is an absolute anticipatable fact for all the people of faith, and that Christ was the first fruits or the firstborn among the resurrection of the dead. He was a true and better Adam, whereas Adam lived and died, Christ lived, died, and rose again, and so our hope is in Christ. So we're talking about resurrection. There apparently were doubters, and there was bad theology and thus bad practices in the first century church at Corinth during the early AD 50s when we believe the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to this young church that was, uh, they, were, they were smitten with problems. But at the same time, Paul had hope in their salvation and desires for them. And so they were worth teaching, and we are too. So be taught today from God's Word and hear His words, these words afresh and anew. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. 
I say this to your shame. Now, notice the why and what questions a little bit through here. Verse 29, what do people mean by being baptized? Uh, Verse 30, or verse 29 again, why are people baptized? Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? Verse 32, what do I gain? Verse, that may be it. Let me see here. What do I gain if I, humanly speaking, I fought beasts in Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So see what and why questions. And then he gets into his exhortation there at the end with some, uh, with some very direct verbs. He gives some action-oriented verbs, imperatives, and those are found in deceived, not deceived, So he doesn't want you to be deceived. They're found in the word wake up from your drunken stupor. That's a literal translation. It's it's the idea of of waking up, of of coming to attention about spiritual things. And then uh, also it says here not to go on sinning. That's another imperative, sin not. So that kind of gets into his exhortation there at the end to understand the, the lay of the text. And I think that's always important for us to be able to apply the text. We have to understand the text in its context. And we do too little of that. Uh, unfortunately. So our first point this morning is understanding how the resurrection impacts our lives as far as the signs that we take on, such as the sign of baptism, the symbol of baptism, the meaning of baptism, the richness of baptism. There is an immediate question that concerns verse 29, because we don't do this. And the question is this, how do you interpret a statement that seems to indicate that people were being baptized on behalf of dead people. We don't do vicarious baptism now, do we? Uh, we care about those that die. We, want, we hope that they go to heaven, but we, uh, we don't practice praying for the dead, or at least that's not, a, that's not orthodox Christianity of the Protestant stripe. That's not something that we do. Now, so this is a verse you would go to, and it's one of the only places that you could go to to say, well, maybe such a thing should be a good idea. And what I want to give you is a few different ways of reading this verse, and then what I'm hoping that you will do with this verse. And I just wanted to be upfront and honest about that fact this morning, because we don't run past tough verses and tough texts. We walk right through them, because we believe this is God's holy, inspired Word. So what is this with this this sign of baptism, and what's meant by this statement? Well, if you were a Mormon you would, in fact, practice vicarious baptism, but Mormonism is not Orthodox Christianity. Vicarious baptisms were, if they were practiced at all here, erroneously practiced, but they did give evidence to the fact that people in Corinth believed that there was something after this life, that you didn't just lay into the grave and that was it. There was no annihilationism of the soul. There was no ceasing to exist the body was going to resurrect. So however erroneous the practice, it still pointed to the fact, like Ecclesiastes 3 said, that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men and women. It is possible that Paul describes this phenomenon, and in describing it, he's saying this happened, and even these people know that there's something after life, but in describing it, he's not prescribing it. He's not saying just because this happens, you should do it. One would think that if he was in any way prescribing baptism on behalf of the dead, he would write about it somewhere else, uh, that there would be other New Testament authors and carried along by the Holy Spirit that would articulate how to go about being baptized for the dead and what it means to be baptized for the dead. Uh, frankly, that just doesn't seem to be in keeping with the New Testament at all, as baptism is indeed connected with faith, and faith is something that would have been decided prior to a person's passing from these earthly scenes. 
So perhaps he describes a phenomenon, but doesn't prescribe it. Another option is baptism can be spoken of metaphorically in the New Testament. Earlier in this letter, 1 Corinthians, we see that it was spoken of that way, where people were, quote, baptized into Moses in the sea, or baptized with Moses in the sea. And that that kind of passing through the sea, there was water, and the waters were parted. You remember the miracle? So that the children of Israel could get out of Egypt. Well, they weren't actually baptized in a new covenant sense. So we have this example of a metaphoric explanation of baptism, not in new covenant baptism terms, but the baptism has a range of meaning. Another, there's like 40 arguments. I'm just giving you a couple of different thoughts here of interpretation. Another one, and A.T. Robertson of my alma mater, Southern Seminary, made this kind of famous in the late 1800s when he wrote about it. He said that the preposition that gets translated here on behalf of is other places translated concerning. And so it would say something like this. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized instead of on behalf of the dead concerning death? And he seems to think that would fit the argument a little bit more smoothly if you look then at the second stanza, the second part of verse 29. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized concerning death? And his argument is that when we baptize people, we say in conjunction with the New Testament books, buried with Christ, indicating death, and rise to walk a brand new life, indicating life. And so we lay and pull back up, and the whole point of baptism, well, there's lots of points to baptism, but one of the points to baptism is to indicate our consistent and perpetual belief that the dead in Christ shall rise. Buried, rise. And that is an argument that's gotten some traction as well. It doesn't separate faith from baptism, but those that are baptized are people of faith. Um, the, the, the truths that we can, we can get, oh, there, there's one more thing as well. There's some that believe that they were literally baptized over graves, uh, maybe in the catacombs. So it was, this is kind of endearing, even though I don't think it's what happened. They believed, they were so thankful for those that had led them in the faith that when someone died, if they converted following the death, they would be privileged to be baptized over the dead. The preparation, preposition could have a range of meaning. They, were literally, they literally went out to the grave or the, the cave, and they were baptized on top of the cave. That's another option as well. So there's a range of options here, one of which I cannot commend to you is that you should be baptized on behalf of the dead. That is not something I can commend to you. The New Testament does not give us any indication anywhere else that that is a good idea. Baptism is for every new covenant believer. It's closely linked with that symbolism of death or burial in baptism and, and life coming up out of the water. Paul sees baptism as an argument for believing in the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of the dead thus being central to the gospel. So if you personally have not been baptized following faith in the gospel, you should seek it. You should seek it. Do not wait on a deathbed confession and don't wait on someone else to clean up spiritual messes after you're gone. The Bible speaks of faith for you. Today is the day of salvation. And so if you have not been baptized following faith in the gospel, you should seek to be. Do not put that off until tomorrow. You should seek to begin to address that dilemma today because people of faith follow Christ in baptism. Baptism is to be understood as a one-time individual oath-bearing sign of the covenant that you take on. Whereas when we take the Lord's Supper, it's an ongoing or a group oath-bearing sign of the new covenant in Christ's blood. So in that way, baptism confers membership in Christ's church on the individual, the baptism mean. So baptism hasn't lost its, its importance. It hasn't lost its, it hasn't lost its verve. Now, 
obviously a person needs to be old, old enough to understand what's going on and to be able to take on the commitments of membership in the church. I'm not one that subscribes to the fact that if you delay baptism as you work through what it means to be born again, that somehow if something were to happen to you that you wouldn't go to heaven because you didn't get baptized in water. The regeneration of the Holy Spirit is the baptism that precedes the baptism in the water. And so I don't advocate to you that if you don't do that in a timely manner and you were to, say, perish in a car accident or something, then therefore you'd, you'd be in trouble. We're not sacramental in that way, and we're certainly not Catholic in that way. What we are is believing that baptism is important because Christ commanded us to be so. And I've already read this text, but it bears repeating Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. And this is what it says. Jesus came and said to them, this is following his own resurrection from the dead. He comes to them in his glorified body. He says to his earliest followers, he says, all authority has been given to me. And then he gives them this commission. He says, go and make disciples everywhere of all, all ethnicities, all nations, baptizing them, notice the word, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in the name of the triune God, baptizing them then teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded you. And so there is, you baptize them, and they're baptized into a teaching ministry that is that's perpetual, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the commands of Christ then are to be taught lovingly, truthfully, to those baptismes. And he says he's with us in this until the end of the age, intimating there's going to be an end of the age, that there's going to be an end of of time as we know it, and a consummation of Christ's kingdom. That is the, as it's known, Great Commission. It's the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and important to it is baptism, and baptism is important for you. Our first point this morning is how your belief in the resurrection spurs you to take certain symbols. Baptism is one of them, and it's meaningful for you. And so if, you've, if you are of age to understand and take on that covenant, it's time to talk about that and not delay it any longer. Second point, your belief in the resurrection of Christ, in your own resurrection as well, we say, one for the other, the other for one. Your belief in that should have an impact not only on the signs that you take, such as baptism, but also on the goals that you make. What's your goals in life? I was at a men's breakfast yesterday, and I had the privilege of speaking for just a little bit. One of the points that I made is, is that sometimes we take ourselves too seriously, and other times we really don't take the moments of our life serious enough. Both of them are possible for you. You could be too haphazard about making goals, having plans. Or it's possible that you could be such a micromanager of your life that you don't ever stop long enough to say, God, what would you have for me? And maybe this is a divine interruption to my otherwise perfectly crafted plan. Whose will is it anyway for my life? So there are these two ways that we can sin with regard to God's will for our life. Well, this text says some very, very important things about God's will for your life. It says some very important things. And I think that's where we pick up in verse 30. I think we can see how what we say about believing will resurrect from the dead, how that's supposed to impact our goals in the here and now. So listen afresh to verse 30, 31 in the very first part of 32. It says, why are we in danger every hour? A quick pause. The apostle Paul was in danger. Now, I, I Need the Every Hour is a great song that we sing, and it's not saying literally on the clock every hour, seven bells, eight bells, nine bells, I need thee. It's saying all the time, I need you, God. And that's what's going on here. It's not that Paul literally faced a death threat every hour. I mean, I guess he could have some days. The point is, 
He is under duress all the time because there's bounties on his head. There's fatwas on his life. There's this idea that he could die any day. Here's Paul. And he says, I, he says I, I, my life, I'm in danger all the time. And then he offers this protest, which we Protestants ought to know something about. I protest, brothers and sisters. And he does it by what? This is a fascinating phrase. He does it by his pride in the people of the church. This is a fascinating, fascinating study, and, and I wish I had more time to give it, but I just can only give four or five sentences, and I hope that you'll consider this concept going forward. What you do with your plans is important. If you micromanage it, you may need to back off and trust the Lord, but some of you are way too haphazard with the things of your life, with spiritual things and your goals and whatnot. As you come to make these goals, one of the things that creeps in is pride or boasting. Now, I'm going to get this done, and so therefore, because I'm going to get that thing done, then I'm going to start to kind of get prideful about it. I'm going to think, I, I did that. And there is a sense in which we should be giving honor where honor is due. But ever so slightly, if we're not careful, the pride of life can swell up in us, and pride comes before the fall, the Scripture says. So the question that bears here is, what is appropriate pride? What should we brag about? And I've studied some scriptures, some cross-references in this scripture in preparation for today. But my main answer, in brief, without going through all those scriptures, we could talk about that aside from today. My main answer is, is that when you boast in Christ, you're on a firm foundation. When your pride is in Jesus and you brag on Him first and foremost, that's not bad pride. The range of meaning for this word, it's often translated, the word that comes to you as pride here, it's often translated as boast. And I think we're on pretty good foundation here as well, based on this verse. 1 Thessalonians 2 is like it, where it says, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus? Is it not you? And he talks about the church at Thessalonica, the same as he's talking about the church at Corinth here. I think it's okay, based on what happened here in these scriptures, for us to boast about one another. So I think it's okay for me to brag on Danny or Connie or or Brax, or, or Stephanie, or it's okay for you to brag on me. I mean, I shouldn't like pay you up front to brag on me so I can, you know, exercise my pride muscles. That's not the point. Uh, but the point is, is I think when we brag on one another, when we give honor where honor is due, I, I don't think that's patronizing. I, I think what that is, is encouraging. We're building one another up. So an application to this is, as you are setting goals, remember to encourage the goals that are met and the achievements that are made of your fellow members. Encourage the people in the church. Paul certainly does, and I think it's an emulable practice. Take pride in them as they take pride in you, as we mainly take pride in Christ. I think Christ and His church is a big part of what we glean from this text. It's very, very important. So, so when you believe in the resurrection following your death, and you believe that's rooted because logically because of the resurrection of Christ— you're going to set some goals, and that's going to involve some boast-worthy accomplishments, hopefully across time, some, some failures. It's going to involve some risk. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is describing himself to have done, taking risk in this passage. As that's, that's how he's living out his life. So he is born again, and he decides that his travels needs to include, and for, in his sake, primarily be about sharing the gospel with people that need to hear it, and then building up those that have come to faith into church units or churches locally. And, and so that's what he does. And he says here, as a result of that goal, 
He says that he is facing danger every hour. He says here, metaphorically, truly, I die every day. I die daily. He says that other, other places in the, in the New Testament. And then he says in verse 32, what do I gain if, uh, humanly speaking, if just humanly, what do I gain if I fought with beasts at Ephesus, which he may have actually done, or it may be, again, metaphoric. He was certainly writing from Ephesus, we believe, so it's possible he was not understood as a Roman citizen and wrongly put in places where God had to miraculously save his life uh, for his purpose. I, we don't know. There's lots written about it. We don't know. But he says, what do I gain if, just humanly speaking, if I take on all these risks and the dead aren't raised? And, and in other words, he's saying, I am taking these risks because I'm firmly convinced that the dead are raised. There's going to come a point where your faith is going to cost you something. It may, it may not be yesterday. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. But there will be a point where there's no place to hide if you live out biblical Christianity and you're willing to give a reason for the hope that you have, like 1 Peter 3.15 says. If you're willing to witness for Christ and to fulfill His great commission, no matter what your career, vocation, geography is, you're gonna, there's going to be a place to where there's no place to hide. There's going to come a time, rather, when there's no place to hide where you're going to face pushback, blowback, missed opportunities, friction, maybe even punishment for your faith. That is consistently the witness of Scripture. And what he's saying here is if, if, if we don't actually believe in this resurrection, then what is the point of this suffering that I go through? Like, why do I take these risks, these ways, if Christ isn't risen, if I'm not going to rise from the dead. Friends, I'm going to just push just a little bit further on this nerve before we move past our second point, because I think it's helpful. It's, hard, it's, it's difficult, but I think it's helpful. This is where the wheat from the chaff gets separated in this life. All of a sudden, you're walking along with people, and they're claiming, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And all of a sudden, when it's difficult to maintain that testimony from a, from a like, you know, there, there's, there's maybe loss of job opportunity or there's, maybe there's pushback, there's being made fun of, there's, there's any number of things that come your way. Uh, in this case, he says, I fought with beasts in Ephesus. When that happens, it's possible that you drop the ball and then you get back in the race. Totally happens. Sometimes God uses that to expose and you're walking alongside and you think, that person is doing a complete 180 hypocritically. They don't actually believe in the miracles that Scripture gives witness to. And sometimes it's, it's not just a stumbling and coming back in like some in the early church did. Sometimes it's a realization that people that say they're Christians were Christians because of some Constantinian advantage in Rome or some American advantage with the vestiges of cultural Christianity that remain here. But they're not Christians in terms of conviction. Listen, friends, what I'm praying for you is that you would be convictional Christians that you are going to rise from the dead, and even if you lose your life for your faith, you have lost nothing in the kingdom of Christ. His beauty, His kingdom, His kingship, His rulership is as sure as the skin on the back of your hand, and He is going to consummate His kingdom, and you can be so sure of it even if you're like the English Puritan Thomas Cramner who, who, who denied and then recanted and came back to the faith and was killed for it, even if you're like that, you believe in your core that this witness of Scripture about Christ is real and miracles are real and that there's a day coming and you can't get away from it. And when you do get away from it, it bothers you. 
And friends, if you don't believe in this witness of Scripture about Christ, we invite you to come to faith in Christ this morning. Oh, unbeliever, I'm telling you, there is a real day coming in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord. And at that point, you won't have the opportunity to do it by faith because His kingdom will be viewed by sight. Today is the day of salvation. For you to be baptized as a result of your own personal living faith, that we may be able to bring witness to that and say, She's one of us. He's one of us. The Bible says that you will indeed know them by the company that they keep as well. Our first point was that our belief in the resurrection causes us to take on certain signs, such as baptism. Second point is our belief in the resurrection takes us, causes us to set certain goals, and in those goals there's risk and there's boasting, but there's ways that we accomplish goals to the glory of Christ and for the good of His people in the church and not just for ourselves. I believe that is a, a nice and interesting way of viewing and reading Paul's risk-taking. And our third point is that our belief in the resurrection, our conviction about the resurrection, causes us, and it's probably, probably a difficult point, but it causes us to pursue the kind of company that encourages moral living. Encourages moral living. Listen to the text, how it, how it lays out. It says in uh, verse, the second half of verse 32 through verse 34, Do not be deceived. Be deceived not. There's an imperative. Direct, direct or direct. Don't be deceived, folks, in the church. He's talking to folks that claim to be Christians already. Bad company ruins good morals. Bad company ruins good Morals, those that you, you hang out with, you homily with, those that you discuss with, are those that, that would be considered good company, enhancing rather than decaying good morals? Or is it bad company that would, that would, that would, that would decay morals or, or ethics is the Greek word for this, ethne, your ethics, your morals and ethics. Bad company ruins good morals. Some, some of yours might say bad company corrupts good character. It's a fair translation either way. We'll go with it here. Bad company ruins good morals. Verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Wake up. Come out of it. He's acknowledging this is the church, and he's saying, you've been in a stupor. Make today the day you come out of it, as it's right. Don't go on sinning. Don't keep on sinning, people. Wake up. Don't be deceived. The kind of company you keep is going to impact the morals that you live. And it says then in the end of this, for some have no knowledge of God, it says, I say this to your shame. Now, in other places, in Corinthians, it says, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not trying to shame you. And then sometimes, playing off of an honor-shame culture that we have at least a little bit of, not nearly like they did, sometimes he says, I say this part to your shame. So it's not that he's trying to make them utterly ashamed, but he is trying to say, if you're one of these folks that's keeping the kind of company that's functionally denying the resurrection of the believers, then you are keeping bad company and it is decaying your character. It's decaying your morals. And so because it is, it is ruining your morals, you need to wake up from your stupor. And certainly drunkenness is a sin, but this is not primarily, I don't believe, about alcoholic consumption. This is primarily about waking up. You're, you've become dull towards spiritual things. And you need to wake up and you need to examine the company that you're keeping. Because your convictional belief in the resurrection of Christ and thus yourself, because he was the first fruits of the resurrection, your belief that you're going to be resurrected should have been what prompted you to be baptized, and it should be what prompted you to 
to shape goals as would be for boasting in Christ and in the church and for reaching others for the Lord, no matter what your career was, uh, no matter what your career is. And it should also, that conviction should shape the kind of company that you keep. And the simple question I have for you this morning is, does it? Do you make decisions about the kind of regular company that you keep in light of the truthfulness of this verse? Now, some, some of you that are thinking people would say, well, now, Pastor, how am I ever supposed to witness to anybody if I only hang out with Christians? Ah, I anticipated your question. Some of you are thinking that. I thought you're always telling us to fulfill the Great Commission by telling other people about Jesus, and I am. That is the truth. It's, not, it's, it's two truths in tension. We're not denying that at all. I said, so, well, then what does this mean? Very simply, it means this. Is whatever you're doing actually having a witnessing effect on them? Or is whatever you're doing having a moral degradation effect on you? Because if it's the latter, it's not witnessing. It's keeping company to the extent that you're not actually giving proper attention to the relationships and the membership of the church. You've probably fallen out of of, of the habit of praying through the directory and knowing who your brothers and sisters are locally that are supposed to be keeping you in the faith and encouraging you along the way and building you up and praising and boasting in you as they boast in Christ and encouraging you to work good morals. And you're probably spending a whole lot more time with folks that don't seem to indicate any intention of actually following Christ in a local church than you are with the members of the local church. What I'm saying is give priority treatment to the relationships with the other members. And then, with all that you can muster, without getting pulled down into the the, the depths of, of sin. The Bible says that we're not supposed to be real knowledgeable when it comes to evil. It says it right here in Corinthians. We're supposed to be a little bit of, kind of like babies. We're not supposed to get too far into evil in the name of trying to pull people up. It's easier uh, for sure to get pulled down into it so that whenever you go to witness to somebody, and certainly you should do that, you make sure that you have the kind of support in the church that you're still fostering good ethics, good morals, and that your morals and ethics are not being changed by the world, but instead the world is being changed by your testimony. Now, this is a tough point to preach. I was listening, and I'll try to explain why by telling a story. I was listening to a a speaker. We'll just leave the person nameless for now. But I was listening to a speaker, and this individual was saying that there are dimensions to influence in American society in particular, probably any society, but because of the way that our governing structure is set up, there are dimensions to influence. And this individual said there are three of them. One of them is political. Another one is moral, and which is what we're talking about here. And another one is spiritual. I'm going to say it again so that you can hang with me. I think, it's, I think it'll help you if you'll be able to hang with this part of this point. He said there is political influence, moral influence, and spiritual influence. And this particular speaker's point was is that it's not wrong to influence politically But don't think that that dimension always impacts in reverse morally. The late Chuck Colson famously said that politics are down the stream from culture. The morals of the culture will have a far greater impact on the politics of the day than the politics of the day will have on the morals of the culture. I think he was right. That does not mean that we should not vote our conscience. That is not a reason to not vote our conscience. I'm not making that point. I'm simply trying to articulate the limits of political influence. Too often we bemoan the political landscape of our day, and this has happened for the history of the country. This isn't new. We bemoan it while doing very little to impact the moral, let alone the spiritual 
dimension of life. When in fact, we should understand that the spiritual dimension leads to the moral dimension of the individual. And that has the most profound and long-lasting impact on the political influence of the culture. If you get it in reverse, at best you become legalists. And at worst, you just give up altogether. This is not strictly, our problems and our influence are not strictly political. Our problems and our influence are fundamentally spiritual. This is what the French sociologist Alexis de Tocqueville said was so beautiful about the American experiment primarily being understood in the 1800s, and it was this. It was not our factories. It was not the way that we could move across the country with rail and then later with car and now with plane. It's not our transportation. It's not the perfect tax structure or the lack thereof. The beautiful thing about America, and this, was, this is truly, you can follow his writings and see the beautiful thing about America is our houses of worship where we gather freely, and where spiritual life is existing by God's grace, and where that is being parlayed over into moral living that is not just for the sake of moral living, but it's because people have been radically transformed inside. Whether or not Tocqueville could have said it that way, saw the beauty in the local church and articulated and pontificated about it. And I'm telling you today, folks, if we're going to see political goodness, change in America. It will be downstream from morality, which will be downstream from spirituality. Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? If you believe in the resurrection of the dead, then therefore, how will you live now? That is the crux of the matter. And you will never be able to get morals any more than you can dress up a pig It has to change from the inside out. We always go back to the hog trough. The soul must be born again. The Bible says that you will not see the kingdom of God without being born again. Nicodemus was perplexed religiously about this, but Jesus said it clearly. You must be born again. So it's difficult for me to preach about morals without preaching about spirituality. Have you been born again? Being born again is really just as, as simple as the Lord doing a work inside of you and you believing the gospel and telling others about it. God converts, you articulate the fact that you are converted. I'm wondering this morning if God is doing something inside of you and it's time for you to tell somebody. Have you called on his name to be saved like Romans 10, 13 says? Have you called on his name to be saved? Have you confess Jesus with your mouth before other believers? Are you being called into the community of believers that believes in resurrection so powerfully that it impacts our, the signs that we take on and the company that we keep, and as well as that, the goals that we set and how we set them and how we have pride and brag and where we're humble and what it means to take risk? Do you understand that? And God has opened the eyes of your heart that you can see, behold, beautiful things. Believers, don't be deceived. The Apostle Paul's intended audience here was actually not unbelievers, like I've been speaking to a few times in the sermon. It's actually you. He says, don't be deceived. Don't go on sinning. Bad company corrupts good morals. You're the ones that have been spiritually made alive, so live like it. And it'll make an impact all over, but just live like it because of the fact that you're supposed to live like it. I was reading in the Bible 
different places, and I noticed that this text, the Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah 22, which is a passage in the prophet Isaiah you ought to go read. It's the, where we, the Puritans got the concept for the valley of vision. But it's, it's the passage where they were eating and drinking and being merry because tomorrow they might die. And they were proving with their escapism that they didn't understand that God himself had planned for things long ago and that they were to live in light of God's gospel going forward, of God's message going forward to the Gentiles, and they didn't understand it. And so they were eating and drinking because tomorrow they may die. Isaiah twenty-two thirteen says, I thought that was a really interesting quotation that we have in Corinthians from Isaiah 800 years earlier. I was reading in the Gospel of Luke this week and cross-referencing this passage, and I was reminded of the parable that Jesus tells. It gets recorded in Luke 12. It says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more important than food, and the body more important than clothing. Such an important parable from Luke chapter 12. Read it this week. Luke chapter 12. Guard against covetousness. Believers, guard against covetousness. Guard against the kind of decision-making and company-keeping that will corrupt good character Do it not for the sake of morality only, but for the sake of spirituality, that you might live out the living witness. Be not deceived. I'm reminded of so many passages about this, but one of them in particular is 1 Thessalonians 4. Listen to these verses. It's the first eight eight verses of 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, We ask and urge you, brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he defines sanctification like this. Listen carefully, folks. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. It's part of following Christ is controlling our own body, is learning to control our own body in holiness and honor. It says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Those that don't know God, they just do whatever with their body. He says that no one transgressions, transgresses in these things and wrongs his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. The Lord is an avenger in these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called you to impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It's my prayer that the Lord would help us to walk pleasing to him like this, following Jesus' instructions. God's will for your life is that you grow up in the faith, and part of that means controlling your own body. For what else can you control if not first your body? It's my prayer that the Lord would help you to live morally, to fight lust and to pursue holiness in a sex-crazed society gone mad. That you would have help to know that you know. 
that Christ is the one you should imitate and not those that you see around you living for themselves and for the day, eat, drinking, and being merry. It's a matter of brotherly concern, this passage says, how you treat one another with regard to these things. We need help as we regard Christ by regarding what His Word says clearly and living it out rather than what we desire in fleeting moments. We need help. The Spirit indwells us, this text intimates, and the Bible says He's given us His Holy Spirit, emphasis on the holy. With the world, things seem impossible, such as living, chase for Christ. But with God, Luke one thirty seven says, these things are not impossible. All things are possible with God. 1 Corinthians 15.34 ends this text today, and I'll end with this. It ends with the fact that he's saying these things about your morals and about how you're living for your shame, that you might change the way that you're living and walk in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is grace in shame. There's a podcast I listen to sometimes. It's called The Grace of Shame. There is grace in shame. Now, if we shame people without hope, shame on us. But friends, the warnings of Scripture are there for a reason, and you can't read our text for today without seeing the warnings. There are real warnings, and there's grace in shame. Have you no shame for what you've sinned in these matters? And will you not receive the grace of Christ and walk in purity? morally pursuing good company, living up to the signs that you've taken or you'll take, and setting goals and keeping goals, not for our own boasting and bragging and pride, but for the good of the Lord and His church. Won't you live that way today? Good company is our title. Sometimes when we ask good questions, we get good answers. That's what this text is about this morning. Better answers. Live convictionally. You'll have a life that is fulfilled more so, even if it's hard, and you will have hope, great hope of eternal life. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, we need you every single hour of every day of our lives. We need your church. We need each other. We need to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus. And God, sometimes we just get confused by the philosophies of people around us that don't know you, some that claim to know you and don't, and some that don't claim to know you at all. God, help us not to live as those that... that live as if we functionally are, are agnostic towards you, don't know you. Help us to live as those that know you. If shame is needed today, guide us to be unashamed of your gospel. Help us to see the grace in shame for where we have lived in sin rather than in light of our salvation. Help us, Lord, that we might be living witnesses for you, and we might have this joy in this life, that we might be fulfilled even in the difficulties and that we might have great hope of eternal life. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we're meditating on this sermon, these scriptures, I'm going to invite our ushers to come to get our collection this morning.